From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Frankogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, getting charged up about energy storage, one Midwest hospital's RX for sustainability, Paul Hawkins' forthcoming book on solving climate change, and can blockchain brew more sustainable coffee? It's time to wake up and smell the progress this week on 350. It's April 14th, 2017. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. I'm Joel McCower. With me is senior writer Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hello from New Jersey. Yep. It's springtime somewhere. Not here in the Bay it's, Area yet. But. It was 80 plus here yesterday. Wow. So it's summer, actually, I think. Or at least yesterday was summer. Yeah, that was my take on the East Coast when I lived there is that spring is amazing all two weeks of it, but uh, yeah. sounds like you're going right from a fairly wintry time to a fairly summery time, so good luck the fruit with that. Trees, the fruit trees are blooming and the tulips are wilting already. <laughs> That's the weather report, so uh, actually, let's just, let's just get right into the Week in Review. So we're talking tech this week for the week in Review Joel. I noticed we've got quite a few stories. Um, and I also noticed that you spent some time in San Francisco with a couple of, oh, I don't know, kind of well-known technology companies who think that they have a solution to getting us to the SDGs more quickly. Yeah. What, it, what did you learn? Well, this is a really interesting uh, event I attended uh, by an organization that's pretty much under the radar. It's called GESI, G-E-S-I, the Global E-Sustainability Initiative. Uh, this is an organization made up of a bunch of tech companies, uh, ICT companies in particular, uh, in information communications technologies, for those who don't know that acronym. This was hosted at uh, Verizon's Innovation Center in, in, in San Francisco and had uh, a number of companies talking about the intersection of ICT and SDGs. So, of course, SDGs are the Sustainable Development Goals that were uh, passed in 2015 by the United Nations and looking at, uh, at, at 17 very big, audacious goals uh, for the world, like ending hunger and uh, uh, quality education for everyone and, and um, you know, dealing with climate change mm -hmm. and decent work and economic growth and affordable and clean energy and so on. And beneath these uh, 17 big goals are 192 specific uh, targets, and beneath those are you know one or two for each of those targets, different metrics. So you've got about four hundred different metrics here, mm -hmm. um, and it's it's a sort of an interesting world of you know can we actually address some of these pressing challenges? And this event was specifically about what's the role of technology in doing so. So I'm curious, like, were there specific? apps or, or technologies that were particularly relevant or that they were di that were discussed more? Well, we got into a number of different types of solutions. And by the way, uh, this um, event was tied to a really interesting report that we'll link to that came out um, uh, from Accenture, which was one of the organizations uh, there, uh, Accenture partnering with, with Jesse 
talking about, it's called System Transformation, How Div Digital Solutions Will Drive Progress Towards the Sustainable Development Goals. And the event uh, this week was uh, targeted, you know, sort of a, a, a lot of these kinds of solutions. So for example, in, in agriculture, zero hunger is one of the sustainable development goals and using optimized farm management and automated irrigation systems, precision ag, machine to machine, you know, internet of things, soil sensors and satellites and mm -hmm. things like that towards the, uh, the, the potential impact of increasing, um, uh, increasing yields uh, significantly by, with, with less water. Uh, there's another one on, on good health and, and well-being, which is sustainable development goal number three. So how does technology uh, provide remote diagnostics and video conferencing and, and uh, using augmented reality and wearables and biosensors and other kinds of things? Um, and then, um, you know, so looked at across a number of these things. Uh, it's pretty interesting. I mean, we've mm -hmm. covered so much of this on our pages. Heather, you've written some great stories about this. And of course, this is very much aligned with our Verge conference. Uh, so it's this is uh, just a, a keen interest to us and, and uh, many, many of the companies mm -hmm. that we work with and that are listening to this podcast. Was there any, you know, I'm curious, Joel, was there any discussion of like how this stuff actually gets into the field? Who's paying for it? Is it, is it a private public sector sort of intersection or was there any discussion of that element of it? Well, it, that's a great question, and there's, uh, you know, it's, it depends on on the the different technologies and applications. Um, there was one uh, session on on cities, and uh, with Bill Mitchell, who's uh, at Microsoft, and Gordon Feller from Cisco, uh, you know, and uh, talking about some of the kinds of partnerships that are enabling these things um, in, in in Cleveland, uh, for example, there's the city of Cleveland and Cuyahoga County and the Cleveland Clinic and Case Western University and a number of others came, entities came together to create something called Digital C, which C for Cleveland, which is a digital strategy for Northeast Ohio to bring some of these technologies uh, to bear. Obviously, this gets very different when you get out into uh, rural Africa, um, but there are a number of... of um, Startups, uh, there's one uh, that's uh, based in Nairobi called Taiga that's just trying to disrupt how you bring fresh produce to hard to reach areas. So I'm not answering your question about who pays for this and how mm -hmm. this gets out there. I think that it seems that most of this stuff has to do, and certainly in the developing world, with public-private uh, collaboration sometimes with universities and other players. But I think that's that's you, you hit on... Uh, one of the big challenges is that you know just because you have this technology, getting it into the field, getting it adapted and at scale in a given uh, community or country, depending, that's going to be a big challenge ongoing. You know, I can't help Joel, but think that we we overcomplicate this sometimes. I, I love the fact that these companies are are focusing on this, but sometimes it really, I think keeping it simple would be would be just as useful and let get out into the field and look at what's happening and maybe tap into some of that already. And I think you're right. That's the, that's exactly the challenge that so many of these tech companies, the, the Microsofts and Cisco's and Intel's and Verizon's and others uh, are, are facing here. Um, I, I talked uh, during the event, I, I pulled aside Joan Krzyzewski, who's the general manager of safety compliance and sustainability at Microsoft um, and who's on the board of Jesse to, to talk a little bit about what the organization is, is trying to do and, and how they're trying to move this along. 
So Joan, first tell me about JESSE. What does it stand for? What is the organization? Well, JESSE stands for the Global E-Sustainability Initiative. It's a strategic partnership of information and communication technology companies from around the world. And the goal of JESSE is to implement information and communication technology to solve some of the world's sustainability problems while mitigating the impacts of that same technology. So we're here at this event in San Francisco that's focusing on the intersection of the Internet of Things and the Sustainable Development Goals. Is this one of the big focuses of JESSE? Yes. Over the next um, years, until 2030, many countries throughout the world are going to be focused on implementing the Sustainable Development Goals. JESSE feels that information and communication technology has a real role to play in achieving those goals. Um, when you look at our world today, um, digital technology plays a part in almost everything. And as we can see at this forum today, we're looking at how it plays a part in uh, sustainable agriculture, all the way to education and the use of uh, electricity responsibly. So are companies uh, looking at this as uh, a, a do-good kind of thing, as a, a, a corporate responsibility, or is this actually a business opportunity for them? Well, it's actually all of those things. Um, achieving the sustainable development goals um, impacts everything from climate change to health and gender issues, crossing the digital divide, poverty. Um, so those are all things that we strongly believe in, both as citizens and as corporations. And then um, from the business standpoint, if the companies are able to affect um, change through selling uh, more technology in a responsible way, it's super good for business. And um, we believe that it's going to create a world that's uh, more future-oriented and it's going to uh, impact people's livelihoods for the greater good. So it also has societal benefits. So we're in a room here with a lot of big uh, tech companies, uh, your company, Microsoft, there's uh, Cisco and Verizon and several other, Deutsche Telekom and, and others. Um, is this seen as core to their to business strategy? Is this seen as something that that this is what we need to do to be doing to uh, serve our customers in the coming years? Um, or is this kind of just a side activity that is um, not just for show, it's real, but it's, it's not necessarily a core part of strategy? Well, I think various corporations and companies are on a learning trajectory. And we're all trying to, one, some companies may be trying to understand what the SDGs are, uh, and where they come from and why they matter. Other companies are trying to orient themselves to the SDGs, and some companies are far along enough to where they have an understanding of how um, the SDGs are a positive business um, goal for them. So it really varies across the board. Uh, I know that from where I'm coming from at Microsoft, we're aligning our supply chain along the SDGs and that sort of framework for looking at our business has been inordinately helpful in terms of, you know, refocusing our thinking, um, looking at what matters, looking at what is material to our business. And finally, what is Jesse's goal here from events like this? Uh, what is it hoping to accomplish, and uh, uh, where, where does it want to take this conversation? Well, we want to take this conversation globally, and we want to build awareness about 
the impact, the positive impact of digital technology and the fact that it could impact um, across different countries, developing, developing, developed countries. It can impact different industries. We're bringing together today the NGO sector, um, you know, uh, entities such as GreenViz, um, Joel, and then also um, the companies and corporations and startups. I mean, we all have a part to play in this ecosystem, and we think that we can help each other. And the conversation is very much about ecosystems, so we'll watch that ecosystem grow. Uh, thanks for talking to me, Joan Krajewski from Microsoft. Thank you, Joel. I appreciate it. Well, speaking of complicated technology, Heather, you had a really interesting piece about coffee uh, and blockchain. What's going on there? So, Joel, uh, this is a great story. It's an early stage startup. Um, the fellow that, that's running it is named Daniel Jones, and, and um, he has a lot of experience in the Congo. You mentioned rural Africa before. Um, and he, he has uh, spent time in his previous startup on conflict minerals. Now, what do you think, what, what do conflict minerals have to do with coffee? Well, um, it was what he learned while he was figuring out how to get conflict-free minerals in and out of the country that made him really think that some of these um, digital technologies, in particular blockchain and mobile phones, could help solve the issue. Here's what led him to his latest idea, which is using blockchain to handle coffee exports. To go back to the, the full history of this, is we were the, one of the first companies to export conflict-free minerals from the Congo, especially mm -hmm. to the U.S. And what we found while we were doing that is that, you know, we looked at our P&L and looked at our cost structure and saw what was going on around us is that we were spending maybe 30% of our, you know, uh, SG&A on security and other logistic services just to transport money into the field to pay the artisanal miners for their goods, right, and to analyze their goods. So we had to go in there, obviously, and, and carry hundreds of thousands of dollars in cash, which required us to spend fifty or sixty thousand dollars just in security to make sure everything was okay, especially in Eastern Congo where we were. So my background, you know, from the start was applied mathematics and and, and technology. I was part of the you know the first wave of uh, Silicon Valley in the late '90s. So I had a background in technology. So we started thinking of ways that we could eliminate a lot of that overhead and using digital payments. I guess at the same time, we were always surprised that even in Eastern Congo that we could get a cell signal and that most people, even in small villages, or, or some people, I should say, in the small villages of Eastern Congo, that they were transacting on the streets with their phones. You know, they were buying fruit with their phones. Five or ten cent transactions were being done digitally, which, you know, woke us up a little bit to say maybe we could, we could reinvent the way we do these supply chains so that we wouldn't have the overhead of carrying all the cash into the field, A, and B, you know, as we start seeing things like IoT and blockchain and even certain elements of artificial intelligence could be used to analyze these materials, minerals, even better than what we were doing with engineers and with other devices in the field. Well, that's interesting. So this, this is a company, it's called Bext360, that's B-E-X as an X-ray, T-360. And he's trying to help coffee buyers automate their dealings with fair trade farmers, basically to use technology to, to bring to scale what I think is happening at a much smaller level in terms of uh, coffee buyers and brokers dealing with small farmers. Is right. that what's is that what's going on here? So, so it's a really like it's 
it's a very simple idea. So uh, you know the coin star machines. Yeah, um, those are the things where you go into a supermarket and uh, and and you dump a bunch of coins and it gives you, I guess, cash. So his company came up with the idea of creating basically what's like a coin star uh, machine for coffee. So the the scenario is this: the the small holding the 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 person, the farmer, the the crop person brings in the beans into a central place where they're going to be processed. They place the beans in this system, this machine. The machine sorts sorts out the beans and uses image recognition, so machine learning, image recognition to say, okay, these are the, the these beans look good. This is where they're from. This is where they you know verify the provenance, and then it uses blockchain uh, a blockchain service to pay the the farmer the the harvester immediately. It used to take, it takes sometimes weeks for these folks to get paid, right? At, you know, they'll take the, the coffee out of the region and maybe they'll get paid later. But um, this system basically does two things. It, it verifies, okay, this this coffee came from this, this they, they have a way of figuring out where it came from, of verifying the identity of the of the person bringing it in. And then they're able to pay that farmer immediately. So from the, the processor's point of view, it's a better way of knowing where it came from. Right. And it, and it was legitimately grown. Here's the, the source. These people are using this, these methods. And for the farmer, boom, they get paid immediately um, by their phone. Right. Which they're already using for other transactions. So it was like this fellow, Daniel, looked at the infrastructure um, in the marketplace, the infrastructure, if you will, like phone service and uh, tapped into what was available already. Um, here's a little bit more about how they use image recognition to identify coffee. For example, when we went to Mexico, we would take samples of the coffee that's grown in that region, and we would label our, our, our in our first tell it's called a training set. So we take a number of coffee beans, or coffee cherries, and we'd label them to say this is quality, what we did down there was quality one through 10, for example. These are what, so 10 being the best and one being the worst. And so what our machine, what AI does in our machine is we run those those training sets through it, and the machine, because we take visual analysis, we take a visual image of every cherry that goes through our machine using two cameras. And so AI can take all that data, the imagery data and kind of just normal data, you know, where it is in the view. And it can determine from that both the, the size of the cherry of the, of the cherry itself and uh, the quality based on how you tell it. So similar to other AI applications, you can picture AI as being used for mainly, mainly like digit recognition or, you know, um, imagery recognition. You know, most yep. of the applications are yep. picking things out of pictures. We're doing the same things. We're really we're, we're using AI to train our machine to identify the different quality types we need to do. And it also can identify things like we can run uh, non-cherries through it, right? Like in, in the coffee world, those are called... Uh, 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 defects, right? So we have intrinsic defense and extrinsic defects. So if a rock goes through it, for example, or a stick goes through the machine, we can use AI to identify that object in that image as a non-cherry or as a true defect, right? Mm-hmm. And so the way coffee, AI fits in really well with the way coffee is an- analyzed today, but it, it they use it during sampling. So typically coffee is analyzed by taking a sample of the coffee and then they, you know, a human being picks through it and says, this this coffee, this this cherry is no good because it, uh, it 
it has a bird, you know, bird bit it. So that cherry's not good. So they go through it in general and say, okay, and based upon the number of defects, the color and the size, they give it a rating. And that's how the buyers of coffee typically today buy the coffee. Our machine will do that, but it, obviously it'll do it on <laughs> exponentially. It'll do it on every single piece of fruit that goes through the system. Okay, so this is really interesting. Before we move on, just how does he get paid here? Where does the uh, where does this become profit-making business, or is this a nonprofit? Right. No, no. He, there's a couple of different pl- things. First of all, um, the uh, the company that that puts the machine in place can get paid. So they might get a, a, a sort of a fee um, for putting it in place, right? So they get a, a fee for the transactions, if you will. Bext um, will in the future be paid by a, a fee for processing, basically. Um, and then the banks, are, you know, there's there's there are people in in the the mix as well that will they'll, they'll still have to sort out the models, but it's a fee-based system. So pe- people get a cut of the transaction um, and hopefully there's enough cuts for everyone. <laughs> but, um, you know, that's, that's the model that's emerging and um, they're playing, they're playing with pilots in a couple of different places. It's a, it's, this is a more early stage startup than I usually write about, but uh, like I said, the idea was just so logical and practical that I, I had to um, bring it to attention. Great. Well, something else you brought to attention this week, going moving from micropayments to megawatts, is uh, about energy storage. Three reasons to get charged up about energy storage. A really great explainer uh, piece about what's going on out there. This really, I mean, energy storage has really, we've talked for years about it as the holy grail for a low-carbon economy, that this, if you can store solar and wind for when the the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining and, and use it any time that that becomes a game changer. And it seems like just in the past year or so, and certainly over the next year or two, this is rapidly becoming real. Yeah. So I think there's, there's a couple of reasons for that. First of all, because the, the technology is becoming more cost effective. There's a lot of lithium ion technology, you know, think about the, the batteries in your mobile phone and there's a lot of innovation going on in that area um, and that's helping bring sort of the cost curve down. So it's they can store more energy. Um, people are able to, if you will, piggyback these together, make arrays out of them. There's a lot of great innovation going on. Um, that's both hardware and software based. Um, you know, Tesla is talking about this. Uh, many, many, many other companies in this space. I mean, so many companies. That's part of the reason I did this story is to try to get a handle on who who matters, right? Um, the other thing I think that's 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 particularly um, compelling is that the application where this is really, you know, many people associate automatically associate energy storage with, hey, store my solar power. But it's really turning out for on the commercial side to be a great technology for supporting demand response, for supporting um you know, how, how do I get paid for peak demand or how do I uh, uh, make my supply more reliable? So some of the companies that are investing it, the, the businesses, if you will, are looking at it more from that point of view than from, you know, which, which means you can put in smaller installations, right? Um, rather than the, the whole renewable energy thing. Yeah. So, so, um, so you, you sort of got to the question I was going to ask you, which is that where is the market here? So there's, mm-hmm. uh, do you think about the potential? There's the there's the residential uh, mm-hmm. piece. I know we charge mm-hmm. our Teslas or whatever, or our Leafs. Um, uh, there's the 
uh, at the other end of this is the, the grid scale where utilities yeah. are using this. And then in the middle, there's the commercial and industrial where companies are being able to do this on site. Where do you, where is this market really going to uh, grow first or is it going to be across all those? So I think where you will see the most happening in the next year to 18 months is direct on site, right? So the, the companies that are saying, hey, you know what, I, I'm going to put um, some capacity on my site. Uh, I'm going to see what happens. I'm going to invest in this. I'm going to to do a pilot. I mean, it's not necessarily a pilot, but, 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 but a small scale installation, right? So I think we will see a lot of on site action. Um, but at the same time, I think you're going to see utilities step in like in Hawaii, right, where they're pooling that capacity on behalf of the of the company. So um, in that instance, in Hawaii, um, there's a number of businesses who have put this on their own sites. And then the utility company is stepping in to help orchestrate that, right, to, to create sort of a network, if you will, of, of energy storage devices um, at the business level. And they that group of businesses can can uh, take advantage of that. So I think you'll see it evolve to that level where there's a collaboration happening um, between a, a corporate uh, site and a utility company. Um, there's a very interesting example also in Vermont. Um, the, the company There's a company I'm watching out of Germany called Sonen. Um, and they have about 16,000 16,000 systems um, installed right now. Probably we don't look at them that much because they're, they're very much a residential play. Right. But if you think about um, that sort of network model that I, that I just described um, that, and, and, and then you think about what's going on in Brooklyn with the microgrid there where you have uh, solar panels feeding into a central place and they, people can buy and trade energy in the neighborhood. I think that, um, sort of that distributed model of, hey, let's share this capacity. Um, it, it's going to happen first at the residential level, but I think that the business world be, will be able to take advantage of that. So um, Sonen has a very interesting deal in Vermont where they're actually going in with a home builder um, in, a, in a, uh, a development community, affordable housing community, and they're installing the their batteries to see how this will work over time. So even though they're they're quote unquote a residential play. I think that um, that model will play in the commercial world. The, the other thing that's really interesting here are the number of different types of technology or chemistry <laughs> that are come that are available. You, you mentioned lithium ion, which is again what, yeah. what we have on our phones and, and, and laptops and, and and such. But there's and then there's there's the lithium ion phosphate. There's sodium mm-hmm. ion. There's zinc cathode, mm-hmm. uh, and mm-hmm. that's just one category. There's also uh, you know, s- flow batteries, flywheels, yeah. compressed air, energy storage, yeah. thermal batteries, pumped yeah. hydropower. I mean, this is rapidly becoming quite a complex ecosystem of technologies, and some of which are going to rise to the top, and some of which I guess aren't. Yeah, and again, I think it becomes a very application-specific play. So um, the chemistry has a lot to do with how long the battery will last, how safe it is, right? Was it going to catch on fire um, how, uh, and so forth, right? How long and ha- P.S. How many times can I charge and re- and and deplete it before it dies? Um, you know, how, is this going to last five years if I'm putting this in place? Ten years, twenty? I mean, you don't. We don't really know these 
answers, but that's what the chemistry, that, that's the impact that the chemistry will have. Um, and, and as far as specific applications, um, I think, you know, pretty, I, I didn't really think about them when I started reporting the story, but CalMac, right? They basically have something, um, it's a thermal play and it's, it's basically, they freeze, they freeze water overnight, um, using excess energy and then allow the air conditioning to draw on that and cool, um, which basically is a form of storage, right? They're storing energy so that they don't have to use it off the grid. Um, but it's not something you would normally think about as energy storage per se. Um, but it's a very, it's very application specific. Would you buy a chiller in the future without that in it? I don't know. So I think you'll see this element show up in, in different pieces of equipment, um, maybe not as a, as a whole onto itself, but as, as an element of other systems over time. So very fascinating area. And I've gotten a lot of email about it. So <laughs> clearly a story that resonated. And we'll be covering a lot more of that. Next week, a book is coming out that's really has the potential to kind of shake things up. It's it's called Drawdown, uh, by edited by Paul Hawken, but involving a small army of contributors. This is a book that uh, I first wrote about uh, when when it project began uh, two and a half years ago in October 2014 uh, called Inside Paul Hawkins' Audacious Plan to Draw Down Climate Change. What this book does is brings a hundred different technology solutions that actually could reverse climate change by drawing down uh, carbon from the atmosphere and looking at some detail, doing the numbers, uh, in a very detailed science-based approach, econometric approach, uh, how each of these technologies will, will play out over the next 30 years and, and adding it up to what could happen to, uh, in aggregate of how we will reduce and maybe solve climate change. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I can't help but wonder, I mean, surely this book has been in, in the works for many months. Why is it even more appropriate right now? Well, you know, I think it's first of all important just to look at some of the the, the, the origin of this. Um, Paul Hawken, of course, uh, author and entrepreneur, and you know, real thought leader for a lot of people in this field. I started thinking about this uh, back in 2012 when when the, the activist Bill McKibben wrote a seminal article for Rolling Stone called "Global Warming's Terrifying New Math." He actually, you know, went through McKibben went through and sort of added up where we're going and, and, and just how big of a challenge we're facing here uh, to to address climate in a meaningful way. And and it was a very sobering, kind of scary article. And out of that, Paul said, well, why aren't we doing the math on the solutions? Somebody should come up with a list and see what it requires to actually reduce greenhouse gas concentrations to uh, a safer level. And... Um, <clears throat> You know, since that time, uh, you know, we've passed various milestones in uh, carbon in the atmosphere. We've obviously gone through the the, the Paris Agreement, uh, and um, and now we're facing this world where, at least, the United States leadership is is questionable for uh, for the time being. And so, yeah, this is really uh, you know an important book to look at. 
not just what the science says in terms of what the technologies can be, but obviously out of that, what are the business opportunities? Yeah, so I, Joel, I'm wondering if there's anything that really stands out as a great example of, um, of real practical action. Well, first of all, let me give you sort of the, the, the bigger picture. I mean, there's, like I said, 100 solutions, 20 of which are not quite ready for prime time. He calls those 20 calls those uh, 20 things uh, coming attractions, things like uh, microbial farming or, or or hydrogen boron fusion, kind of geeky things, uh, artificial leaves, um, marine permaculture. But the other ones that are much more here and now are broken up into you know, energy, food, women and girls, buildings and cities, land use, transport, and materials. Uh, interesting how this maps so much to to a lot of things we talk about at 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 Verge. And for each of the solutions, and I'll get more into this, I'm going to have a story coming out next week about this, uh, and we'll run some clips both today and next week's show. But, you know, looking at, you know, how these how these play out and, and what the potential is. So one of the, some of the really interesting ones are things that are on the social side, like how you uh, educate women and girls and what happens from a climate perspective uh, when you do that, and and what the assumptions are, and how that that uh, the numbers add up, um, I won't get into some of these uh, again in this article next week. But for now, uh, I did a really uh, fascinating uh, thirty minute interview with with Paul recently about the book and sort of where this is all going. So I just want to tease it out a little bit and play a clip and um, just hear a little bit from Paul about what's really going on here. How does what you came up with differ from what you expected to find? I think we had our biases. Uh, we all do. And I think our bias, we had solar and wind right up there. We had managed grazing very high from just reading the antidotal, I call antidotal literature. Uh, we didn't have food as high as we found that to be. We had EVs much higher uh, than they turned out to be. We just had, we probably had pretty much with some exceptions, the same list that most people come up with, you know, which is solar, wind, um, don't cut trees, you know, don't eat so much meat and electric cars, you know. And, you know, just kind of logical, straightforward. And... Um, that wasn't to be the only one of those that made it to the top seven solutions was wind onshore wind is number two but but we didn't see we we never saw number one coming which is which is what refrigeration <laughs> refrigerant management <laughs> it's so obvious in hindsight but hfc's hydrofluorocarbons and number one in terms of gigaton gigaton equivalents you know, global global warming potential of HFCs is thousands of times greater than CO2. Uh, so they have an outsized impact in terms of greenhouse gases. And so that's number one. But stepping up a level, Paul, beyond <laughs> the specific solutions that you identified, how does the final product, I mean, did, did you struggle with coming up with 100 or were there 200 that you were 500 that, and, and you whittled down or I mean how did this process and the ultimate product in the form of the book at least differ from what you set out to do in some ways to me from the as an outsider who's had a little bit of an inside look 
Yeah. It, it actually feels pretty, pretty much what you said a year and a half ago. But I was curious your your thoughts. Well, when we started, we had to definitely put everything in the basket and any idea, any any solution there was, and then throw it in. And then we had to go through a first vetting process and um, and then do, do a sort. You know, these would make it, these won't make it. And we had things that surprised us even after they were in the basket. You know, they're like, okay, these are definitely the ones we're going to analyze and <clears throat> research. For example, we had biofuels. They were in there. And, and they didn't make it at all. They didn't make it to the top 80 solutions. They don't actually have any net contribution whatsoever. <laughs> and that surprised us. And again, going against the literature, scientific literature, this isn't our opinion, Joel. You know, this is just, we couldn't find any contribution, net contribution from biofuels. And and there's a shibboleth that fell for us, you know. I mean, like, okay. And then another one was water. We live in California where you hear varying numbers, but, you know, a quarter of electricity is used to pump water like in California. Well, so we just, you know, water is energy in California. And and we projected that out to the world in some way. So we thought, you know, water conservation, which is still very important, but water conservation would be a big energy conservation equivalent. And that didn't prove to be the case. So we, we got surprised when we actually did the analysis, but prior to that, we probably had a hundred and, you know, when we, in the basket, then we just kept, they kept sort of falling off, you know, in terms of the top 80 and, you know, cause we did 20 coming attractions, which we think are, in, are validated scientifically incipient on the cusp, but not enough data to model them. So we just included them like wooden buildings, for example, wooden skyscrapers, which is a big, huge solution. It surprised us, really surprised. The, the impact is huge, you know, and you just think it's kind of an oddity when you think of a wooden 20 or 30 story skyscraper <laughs> made all of wood and no steel and concrete, but uh it's it has a huge impact so there were surprises there in the coming attractions as well but we just didn't include them in the overall data about achieving drawdown how's the world shifted since you began this project and what are the implications for drawdown as a result i think the big shift for us was on the economic side i think when we started even in the three years the costs have really dropped significantly on renewables, but also in other areas. And I think just during that time, we might have crossed some threshold, uh, some watershed, uh, where the profit that can be made from the solutions now is greater than the profit being made from the problems. In other words, that the business as usual case or reference case is now um, more costly. And I don't think that was always the case at all. In fact, I meant we all know it wasn't. It was the other way around. And I don't, th I mean, you see it in Bloomberg and, you know, and uh, Goldman, they're talking about it in terms of wind and solar, but I think it extends beyond that. I think it extends to regenerative agriculture. I think you're seeing some farmers and literally good old boy farmers, you know, from Saskatchewan right down through Texas and, you know, into White Oaks uh, farm in Georgia and, and big farms big farms, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of acres and single farms. And their costs are going down. Their productivity is going up. Their vet bills have crashed, you know, to 10% of what they are. The, the, 
the yields are increased, the inputs have disappeared, it's in farm fertility. Um, these guys are buying more land from farmers who ruined their land and are going out of business and they're practicing regenerative agriculture in, 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 in different and in sundry ways, but the same principle, which is don't till the soil, complex cover crops, and, and also um, very more complex rotation too, not just soy corn, soy corn, soy corn, soy corn, which is what you see throughout the Midwest, you know, which is destroying the place. And so there is another area where I, I, I just think the, the, the cost-benefit ratio is flipped. So yeah, this is going to be really interesting. The book is coming out. Official publication date is uh, next week on uh, Tuesday the 18th. And uh, more on that um, also in next week's show. Sounds like required reading. healthcare practitioners to treat the whole illness, not just the symptoms. It also tasks physicians to, quote, do no harm, end quote. But the healthcare industry, which nonprofit organization practice Green Health estimates constitutes nearly 20% of the U.S. economy, inadvertently causes polluting side effects. For example, did you know that hospitals are 2.5 times more energy intensive than other commercial buildings? While emissions from burning fossil fuels can cause birth defects, nerve and organ damage, cardiovascular disease, stroke, or even cancer, one organization, Gunderson Health Systems, set out to heal that wound by becoming energy independent. Our very own associate editor, Anya Hallmeiser, spoke with pediatrician Dr. Jeffrey Thompson about that journey. Hi, Anya. Welcome to the show. Hi, Heather. It's great to be on again. Thank you. So, Anya, why did the Gunderson Healthcare Network decide to switch to renewable energy? When I spoke to Dr. Thompson, he said that the side effects, the polluting side effects of the healthcare industry were, quote, inconsistent with the mission of healthcare. And he is a pediatrician and CEO emeritus at Gunderson Health Systems, a hospital network operating in 19 counties in three Midwest states and headquartered in La Crosse, Wisconsin. So he has firsthand experience um, with the concern of causing more harm than good. And in 2008, Gunderson commenced its Envision program, and it's a very detailed program that set the hospital network on the path towards reliance on renewable energy. And they rely on a mix of renewable energy sources, which saves them $3 million annually and also improves community health. So the initial goal was to make a positive environmental impact while reducing the cost of care for patients. So Anya, what renewable goals did um, Gunderson set and how did it reach them? It worked within a network of sustainable health organization under the Practice Green Health Network. It was a nonprofit network of hospital systems that was founded back in the 90s and that includes now Kaiser Permanente and other hospital systems. And they're all committed to uh, creating best practices around health care. So Gunderson had its own individual plan and strategy with four pillars of sustainability. That's energy conservation, waste management, recycling, and sustainable design. They started with energy conservation and then began step-by-step -step to put money into each part of the plan. 
For example, for the energy conservation part, they started making several energy-efficient retrofits. And it, it did cost them a bit of an investment. It was $2 million, but they um, get a 60% return on that investment year over year, according to Dr. Thompson. And they've kept their energy expense below the 2008 costs, although they expanded the facility space by almost a quarter and also saw a pretty big spike in utilities pricing. It also diversified its electricity mix. So it uses a bio ba- uh, biomass boiler to create steam power, and that's now the hospital network's main source of electricity. They also depend on a geothermal heat pump, um, 300 tons. It's beneath a parking lot, including geothermal wells. And it also works with local farms and dairies to turn uh, manure into millions of kilowatt hours of electricity. So it's not just solar pans. Solar, um, as Dr. Thompson explained back when they started, solar panels weren't the best financial option. So they decided to diversify, and they're now getting really, really great results. And here's Dr. Thompson talking about their uh, their return on investment. Instead of goal of becoming, of being able to produce 100% of our energy by renewables that we owned by 2014, so this is 20, 2008, 2014, and we actually hit our first day of producing more energy than we used in October of 2014. Since then, we've had hundreds of days where we've produced more energy than we used to know not 100% yet. We're still working on plans to get to 100% all the time, but but we've come a long ways, and as a marker of how far we've come, um, we've been able to drop our greenhouse gas emissions, our particulate emissions, and our mercury emissions from coal plants, of course, by over 95%. So, you know, many, many Industries, many governments are aiming to get 30% down by 2030 or 50% down by 2050. And in eight years, we were able to drop ours 95% and make money. That is, lower the cost of care and improve our local economy. We save about a half a million dollars a year in uh, reusing what originally was classified as uh, single-use devices. You know, one of the one of the common ones are masks used for anesthesia that are listed as a single-use device, but you can have them um, sent to a specified registered place who disassemble them, um, clean them, reassemble them, and then you can then use them for subsequent patients. You save 50% on the cost. The cleanliness, the carefulness of all the processes carefully watched and uh, so it becomes like many, many other devices in healthcare that are that are used over and over but have to have a very careful cleaning process. All right, so that's energy. How did the hospital system commit to its other pillars? The other pillars are sustainable design, and that's not just for its own building. So the $33 million annually that Gunderson now saves because of their um, different sustainability initiatives, it allows the hospital network to give back and invest in the community, as we talked about, the, uh, you know, fix the whole problem. And that includes the community health is, is not just an individual um, individual health, the health of multiple individuals, their well-being inside the community. So they give back to the community. They do workshops. They do um, also retrofits, sustainable design for old buildings in the community. And uh, when they, so they, that's good for homeowners. Um, 
But the recycling part is really interesting. I'm really interested in the circular economy and this healthcare network does a lot with that concept. Um, Gunderson instituted a recycling program and it collects over 4,000 pounds of pharmaceutical waste. And that was just in the first year. That was more than the facility itself generates. So that was just by putting out recycling bins in its facilities so that uh, physicians, so that visitors can put their waste in these bins. Um, the hospital's recycling rate overall is 45%. It diverts hundreds of tons of furniture, food, x-ray film from landfill. And that saves money because medical waste disposal can cost five times more than home or commercial waste. And it also prevents these uh, pharmaceuticals and um, other hazardous medical waste from going into our stream of, of water and into the environment. So we're talking about Gunderson, but, you know, there's some pretty good ideas here that other hospitals and, and, and medical facilities could adopt. So I'm wondering, you know, what, what are you seeing? You, this is a great story. I enjoyed reading it this week. You know, what else is happening to make this, again, more holistic and, and to, to spread it through the, to, through the medical industry? Practice Green Health, which um, Gunderson is a part of, it brings together hospital networks to increase their buying power to source sustainable tools and furnishing. So a hospital on its own doesn't have a ton of power to change the entire industry because um, there are these buying collectives that kind of determine the kinds of materials that hospitals use. But together, when they band together, the hospitals can create purchasing networks with power of the conglomerates. So, for example, before Practice Green Health and Healthcare Without Harm, which is, they became one organization, um, hospitals used to burn PVC IV bags. So that plastic, when burned, released to this toxin, um, dioxin into the surrounding communities. But now the standard, because of this uh, cooperative, the standard is to sterilize them instead in an autoclave and reuse them. So the actions of these networks not only save waste from landfill, save money, they actually can add up and save lives. And I come from a medical family. I'm the black sheep in the family, so to speak. I'm the only writer. So this uh, topic was really close to my heart. Well, that's our 350 podcast for this week. You can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll find links to the organizations, stories, events, and other things that we've mentioned in this episode. Thanks to my co-host, Heather Clancy, and our podcast director, Sir Rhea Melconian. You can contact us by email at 350 at greenbiz.com. We always love to hear from you. And we'll see you back here next week for another edition of Green Biz 350. By the way, if you can't wait that long, go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll find past episodes, uh, some great ones that are still worth listening to. From all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, have a great day.